mentioned at the outset of the service, too, a little bit about the, the vote on Monday, and I forgot to mention that we have little envelopes in the, uh, in the uh, program this morning, and down at the bottom it says property funds. So we wanted to be very careful to make sure we did our accounting really well as people are now going to be giving to the purchase of 100 Kirkwood Place. So it's an envelope you can use. Uh, you can drop a check in it, and you can uh, know that when you seal it, and you can drop it in uh, the offering churches as you leave this morning. You can take it home. You can uh, d- decide what you're going to do and then mail it to the church. But as long as it says property fund on it, we will make sure that it gets to the right place. I also want to note this morning, I've never been to a church that actually encourages people to sleep during the sermon. I just saw the sign back here. And I, you know, I, don't know if, I think it's from the play last night, but I wouldn't put it past my staff to... Uh, to think that might be a cute idea, but we're going to be asking you to stay awake with us for a little while as we continue our sermon series on questions that are brought to Jesus. Uh, all fall, we're, we're looking at, have been looking at, we'll continue to look at uh, questions that people bring. We'll, we look at the answers uh, a bit, but more importantly, we look at what's behind the questions. What can we learn from the questions that someone asks us? And this morning, as well as next Sunday, we'll actually be in this passage in Luke 18. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, the passage will be on, a que- uh, on the screen in just a second. The question this morning is, uh, what do I have to do? Now, I want to tell you a quick story to set this up. When I was a freshman, I went to a small Christian liberal arts college down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, on a lookout mountain called Covenant College. If you've ever driven from here to Florida and you've gone through Chattanooga, you've seen like that, that mountain lookout, and there's like a couple buildings. That's where I went to college. And every freshman had to take a Old Testament Bible class in the fall and a New Testament Bible class in the spring. The class I was in in the fall was called the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of the law, the five books of the law. And a guy named Dr. Henry Cromendam was the teacher. Dr. Cromendam was about six whatever, like 6'10 or something. He had this big Dutch voice. You kind of thought that God was speaking to you. If God was Dutch, he would look like Dr. Cromendam. And the problem was not with, with Dr. Cromendon, but the problem was this class was right after lunch, and you have this deep, melodious voice, and we're in a building that, that wasn't air-conditioned, and so you'd open the windows, and the fall breeze would come through, and it, and it was kind of like that sign right there. It was, it was difficult to, to stay awake at times. Well, a buddy of mine named Larry, uh, we were sitting in the back row, which shouldn't surprise anybody, uh, and, and he fell asleep in class. And the guy on the other side of him was a buddy of mine named Dave, and about halfway through the class, Larry, I mean, he's out. He's really gone. He's, got, you know, he's like this, and he's drooling, and he goes, I mean, he's just, he's almost snoring. He's so asleep. And Dave looks at me, he goes, watch this, and he elbows Larry, and he wakes Larry up, and Larry's like, what, what? And he goes, Dr. Cromdom asked you to close the class in prayer. <laughs> well, about halfway through. And Larry's trying to wake up. He's trying to understand what's going on. He says, what? He says, Dr. K says, Larry, would you please close the class of prayer? So Larry stands up in the back row, and Dr. Cromdom's writing on the board. He says, oh, dear Lord, we thank you today for Dr. Cromdom and his wonderful lecture. He goes, and Dave and I are like, we're crying. We're laughing so hard. And Dr. Cromdom turns around. He doesn't miss a beat. He says, Dr., uh, Mr. Barker, thank you so much for that wonderful prayer. Perhaps the next time you could wait till the class is concluded. <laughs> and we just really had a lot of fun at Larry's expense. Now, the reason Larry fell for the joke, I told you all that to tell you this. The reason that Larry fell for the joke 
was because everybody in the class knew that at the end of class, Dr. Kramdam always invited somebody to pray. That was our norm. That was the custom. And, and it wasn't unusual for you at the end of class for Dr. Kramdam to look and say, you know, Mr. Ricks or Mr. Barker, Miss So-and-so, would you close the class in prayer? It was something we'd become very used to. It was a practice in the class. There's a practice in humanity. There's an age-old theology that, that the entire world has gotten used to. And the theology goes something like this. Your salvation, if there's salvation to be had, if, if, there, if there is a God and there's salvation to be found, and there is a, a heaven to which you can attain, it occurs and it happens through your good works. You are the, the master of your spiritual destiny. God is watching. He's paying attention. And he set up the rule book and he wants you to follow it. And as long as you follow it, as long as you do the things that you're supposed to do, everything will work out fine in the end. Now, this is not, when I say everybody in the whole world, I'm not just talking about the Christian faith. I'm talking about every major and minor world religion. You can study any world religion you choose, whether it is well-known across the globe or whether it is an obscure backwoods type of tradition that's only held by a few thousand people, and you will find a works based theology. You will find in every corner of the world the religion that says it's based on your effort. You alone control your destiny. Assuming you do the right things, God will be pleased and you will advance. Now the question is, is that true? Is that accurate? And if that's how we live our lives, if we believe it's true, if, if we believe fundamentally that it is up to us that you know, God rewards those who work hard, God helps those who help themselves, then that is going to impact the life we live. Your belief system, whatever it is this morning, whether, whether you believe in the Lord Jesus as your Savior and as the one who gave himself for you, whether you believe that there's no God at all, or whether you believe something in between, or whether you hold to, to a different type of what we would call religion, if you believe that your works save you, it's going to impact your life. Your theology dictates the manner in which you live. And we're going to meet a man this morning that comes to Jesus with a very specific question that is based on his theology. Now, we'll tell you right now, this morning, we're going to concentrate on the man. This morning, you're probably going to leave somewhat frustrated because you're only going to hear half a sermon, but this sermon happens to be about an hour and five minutes long, so I've divided it into two sections. Next week, we'll look more closely at Jesus' response. But for our purposes today, we want to look at this man and his question, what must I do in order to gain insight, not just into the historical event that actually happened, but get insight into our own way of thinking as well as the thinking of the world around us, so that as disciples of Jesus, as we're called to engage with our culture and to share our faith with others, we will better understand our world, we'll better understand ourselves, and we can be used by God to make a difference in people's lives. With that in mind, Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30, hear the word of God. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. 
and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents, or children, for the sake of kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, it is not unusual for a group of people gathered in a church worship service to be concerned with eternal things. The question of eternal life is not something that's confined to a worship service. The question of our existence, the question ultimately of of whether or not we have meaning in life, whether we have been uh, placed here by uh, a quirky fate that just so happened because uh, different small particles came together over billions of years, or, or whether there is more meaning whether there is something beyond what we can just feel and touch is of concern to all of us. So, Father, we we come to a topic this morning that is is not uncommon to anyone. And yet we come to a topic that has, over generation and generation and generation, been given a myriad of answers, most of which are confusing at best and all of which put the, the responsibility on us to do good, to be good, to act good, so that if there is a God that's watching, we will pass the test. Father, we're very used to living our lives in that manner. Even those of us this morning who are disciples of Jesus, even, even those of us who this morning would say that is not our theology, that, that we, we believe and we know a different way. We've experienced the grace of God and His mercy, not because we've worked hard, but because He is compassionate. And yet, Lord, that that way of thinking still finds its ways into our lives and it creates an amazing amount of of pride at times and it creates an amazing amount of guilt at other times. So Lord, I pray that you would speak your truth into our lives this morning. The answer to this question, Lord, everything rests on it. I'm neither worthy nor capable of helping everyone understand this truth. Father, if your spirit doesn't come and work among us, then we will not know. We will not understand. This will simply be somebody else sharing their opinion. So, Father, I pray that you would reveal your truth to us. Please forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to learn and to know and apply this morning. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to break this down into three parts this morning. Because there are three times in which this particular ruler, and in Mark's gospel, maybe you've read this before, it's the, the story of the rich young ruler. Mark adds the, the, the fact that this is a younger person. Uh, but we're going to break the, the conversation down into his three interactions with Jesus. The first thing he does is he comes and he asks a question. We're going to look at his inquiry uh, in just a minute. And then, 
after Jesus uh, uh, shares an answer with him, he then responds to that answer. He, he continues the conversation with Jesus. He's, he's looking for, for a bit of clarification. And then uh, after he receives that from Jesus, we see his reaction. And so we're going to look at the, the inquiry, we're going to look at, at the response, and then we're going to look at the reaction. And again, remember that our, our emphasis this morning is really based on getting to know this fellow well, because it will help us get to know ourselves and one another a little better as well. The question is simply this, what must I do? If the objective is eternal life, how do I get it? How do I get there? Now, I would suggest to you that that, that question, what must I do, comes with an assumption. It comes with a presupposition. It comes with a belief system already in place. This, this young man is coming for clarification. This gentleman has approached Jesus, and he's looking for assistance. He's asking a question that we may ask, that we've actually asked ourselves in leadership at Green Tree over the years, is do we need a mid-course correction? We've been kind of going this way. That feels good, but maybe just kind of slide this way a little bit. This young man is coming and saying, I think I have the general idea, Jesus, but I want to make sure. He assumes that the goal is within his grasp. He believes that is within his ability to achieve. And so he doesn't come in this question looking for salvation. He isn't necessarily coming, asking Jesus to correct any misunderstanding he may have. He's looking for Jesus to endorse his effort. Interestingly enough, he couples his effort. What must I do, right? Okay. He couples that with the idea of an inheritance. And I would suggest to you that's a very odd conversation. Why would you put together that which you earn with something that you are given. Uh, every once in a while, I like to tease my mom. And every once in a while, I like to pull a little practical joke on my mom just to kind of keep her on her toes, you know, just let her know, yeah, kind of just have a little fun every now and then. And typically, her response will be, if you're not careful, I'm going to cut you out of the inheritance. Maybe you've heard that. Hopefully, you've never experienced that. I, I, I know the families can have very difficult problems, and, and, and our family could be said in jest. Some people say it very seriously, but we're all familiar with that notion. You're going to be cut out of the inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance. You're born into it. It's yours simply by being part of that family. It's relationally oriented. And yet, here's this man who is talking in terms of inheritance. What must I do to inherit and I went back to the Greek. I thought maybe this is one of the times where the Greek means something else. You know what this word in the Greek means? It means inherit. <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same exact word. There's no kind of quirky nuance to it. This fella is saying, I've got to earn it, and yet, it, and yet it's, it's an inheritance. It's an odd combination. I would suggest that his question reveals much, not only about his attitude, but the attitude of, of mankind in general when it comes to this question of what must I do to gain eternal life. The, the first thought about this is that he's not above flattery. He calls Jesus good teacher, and again, we'll look at Jesus' response to that. But he, he understands that Jesus is a person of influence. He understands that Jesus is a one who has, who has worked miracles. He understands that Jesus is a person in, in his day and in his culture that speaks with some authority. And so he's very willing to, to acknowledge that, to bring that to the forefront. He's willing to admit that Jesus can, can help him, that Jesus can uh, benefit him. And I say the same is true of us. We kind of look around and we gauge our relationships with people. We say, well, this person could be of, of help to me. This person could be of assistance. This person could be a good friend. I want to be careful not to offend them. I want to be careful to, to give due respect. He's acting very human in this situation. But notice that he says, what must I do? And again, he, he reveals 
an attitude or a belief system within us that we can attain eternal life. You see, he comes looking for help, but not healing. He comes looking for Jesus to say, yep, you're on the right road. You're doing great. Keep it up. He doesn't come to Jesus saying, I I think maybe I'm lost. I think maybe I've I've lived my life on a false premise. Can, Can you save me? He doesn't come with that attitude. And I think that, again, describes you and me pretty well. We're very happy to have a relationship with God, but we want it to be in a context in which we have control. And yet he says, I want to inherit everlasting life. What must I do to inherit everlasting life? I would say that that shows a bit of pride on his part. Because again, there's an assumption there that I deserve life, that this is something that, that should be mine. There's a sense where he's looking at his own life and he's saying, I I think I'm good enough. I think I've done the right things. Jesus, I just simply want you to affirm that. Um, I was on Facebook this morning. And by the way, for those of you that that go to Facebook and think that I'm in West Cliff, Colorado, I pushed the wrong button. I'm not in West Cliff, Colorado. I'm here. Thank you for all the concern I've already already heard. Are you in town or out there? Quite frankly, I don't know how to use Facebook. That's the bottom line. I remember the first time I sent Katie a message about her boyfriend, and I thought that when you sent somebody a message on Facebook, it was just between the two of you? Yeah, it's not. (laughs) Her friends thought it was pretty funny, but she didn't speak to me for a month. But anyway, I was on Facebook this morning, and I saw an entry of a person that said, I really am the best person I know. Now, I love that. I thought, there's a guy that's being honest. He's looking around. He's going, I see all all these, I don't know, deadbeats in my life or whatever, I'm the best guy I know. I got got kind of a kick out of that. Because don't we think that sometimes? Don't we kind of see the pathway to heaven as I just got to be better than you? And and as I look at you, I feel like I got a pretty good head start. Isn't there a lot of pride in our heart that assumes the best about ourselves and the worst about others? And this ruler's inquiry is, is really a statement that says, I deserve it. I want to make sure you understand that. And also, I I see just one other observation under this question. There's a bit of self-centeredness. Notice the question isn't, Lord, what must all, you know, Jesus is in a crowd of people. There's a whole bunch of folks standing around. And the ruler does say, hey, Jesus, just kind of on behalf of the entire group, we all have a a concern here, and I'd like to raise it, but it really affects all of us. All my friends here, my family, we, we really need to know what it means to have eternal life. There's no we in the conversation, right? What must I do so that I may have eternal life. It would seem that really deep down inside, there is no concern for the greater community and social ills that are facing that particular generation in their day and and the need for others to know this truth. His inquiry really reveals quite a bit about his heart, and and I'll certainly say about my heart as well. Jesus answers him in verses 19 and 20. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus gives him an answer. And now let's look at, and again, we'll come back to Jesus' answers next week. But look at the ruler's reaction. Look at how he responds. Verse 21, he says this. All these things I have kept from my youth. Again, see where the self-centeredness, where this, you know, how am I going to get eternal life? See how that leads to a self-assurance. 
Jesus gives him an answer to his liking. He doesn't quite understand yet that this is answer 1A and there's a 1B coming. He, he thinks that this is the sum and substance of the conversation. And so he's like, great, I'm in. I knew I was on the right track. Thanks, Jesus. I appreciate it. Look, I know you're busy. you got some people to heal. i got to go run my business. I'll talk to you later. He really is in a, set, a place of it's all about him. But again, his response reveals so much about the attitude of the human heart. The first thing I would suggest is that when you are living in this type of false assurance, self-examination is shallow at best. Self-examination is very shallow at best. That's the kindest thing that I can say right now. Look at this answer. All these things I have kept since I was a boy. Really? (laughs) All the time? Every time? Do you really want to defend that position? Do you really want to die on that hill, so to speak? You have never made a mistake when it comes to keeping the commandments of God towards your fellow man. You're going to defend that position. Um, Cindy had a really late high school event a week ago Saturday night, and about 11 o'clock, I heard something coming up my driveway, our driveway, that sounded like a muffler being dragged behind a car. As it turned out, I was wrong. It was not a muffler. I was so relieved. It was a tire that had gone flat being driven on the rim of the car. And I got out of bed, and I looked out, and Cindy came in, and she's just all disheveled, and she's upset, and she's, she's close to tears. I'm like, sweetie, what's wrong with her? She says, I'm just, I had a flat tire, and I'm, I'm so sorry, and I just, I knew you'd be upset, and I, and I just, I, I didn't know what to do, and so I just, I drove the rest of the way home, and, and I grabbed her, and I said, sweetie, it's okay. Don't worry about that. When have I ever gotten upset with you about something like this? <laughs> just don't know when to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> First half was really good. She just should have let it go from there. Fortunately, in that moment, she was so upset, you know, that, that it, she kind of missed that part. So I went out and changed the tire, and we got it all squared away. But really, Tom, do you want to defend that position? You've never reacted inappropriately towards your wife, towards your children, towards your coworkers. You've never said a sharp word to someone. You've, you've, you've never murdered them in your heart. You've, you've never lusted after someone. You've never stolen time away from your employee. Do you, do you really want to defend that position? This man has no self-examination. He is not in touch with the reality of his world, which means that this self-assurance not only shows a, a shallow self-examination at best, but it suppresses critical thinking. He, is, he doesn't stop to think about Jesus' answer. If you look at this answer Um, and you know anything at all about the Old Testament, something ought to jump out at you right away. Now, we might not know a whole lot about the Old Testament. There are probably a lot of us in this room this this morning like, Old Testament, yeah, I kind of know a little bit about what that is, not sure. This guy kind of had it all memorized. He knew everything there was to know about the Old Testament. And it should have dawned on him that Jesus only gave him a partial list of the Ten Commandments, that Jesus only gave him five of the commandments six of which are directed towards men. He gave him five of those, but he completely omitted the first four commandments, which are all directed towards God. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Israel. You will have no other gods before me. You will not make any graven images. You will not make any idols. You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days God created the heaven and earth, and on the seventh he rested. It is holy to the Lord. Jesus doesn't speak of any of those 
commandments. And this young man should have stopped and said, that's an odd response. Jesus, why would you leave out my, my heart towards God and focus only on my interaction with fellow man? But he skips right past that. He doesn't see the obvious right in front of his face. He has given this no critical thinking. And so his answer is shallow and superficial. All these things I've kept since I was a boy. Look at how Jesus responds to him in verses 22. In verse 22, when Jesus heard this answer, he says to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. Distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. You see, Jesus looks into the depths of his heart. He understands that the man probably really isn't coming with a question. He's coming looking for a validation of what he's already decided, what he's already chosen. And he isn't thinking any more critically about that than just getting kind of the, the get-out-of-jail-free, pass-go cart, and he will be on his way. And so Jesus stops him up short. And Jesus says, there's one last little detail. Take that idol of yours, which is your money, and get it out of the way so that you can see clearly the path to salvation. And once you do that, you'll know there's really only one answer, and that's just come and follow me. Come and have faith. Come and believe. We'll come back to that next week. But that's Jesus' answer. How does the ruler react? Does the ruler, oh my goodness, thank you. I was, I was headed down the path of destruction, and you saved me. I was right on the edge, and I almost stepped over, and you brought me back. Jesus, thank you so much. I don't know, it's going to take me a while to liquidate, but I'll be back. Is that how he responds? Look at verse 23. When this rich young man heard this message, when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. His self-assurance had led him to a closed-mindedness. It says that he became very sad. In other words, he was unwilling to consider Jesus' answer. It was not a paradigm that he could embrace. It was not a truth that he could hear. And again, his reaction, I think, real, reveals very much about the heart of man, my heart, and, and I believe probably yours as well. The first point in, in this reaction is this that the sadness revealed his true priorities. Remember what he just said a minute ago? I, I've loved my fellow man perfectly. Ignoring the whole part about God, he said, I'm there, Jesus. I'm good to go. Thank you very much. And the sadness reveals that that's not true, that he really doesn't have room in his heart to love his fellow man to the depths to which he should. He doesn't have the, an attitude of worshiping God by caring well for others. We, we've said this before, we'll say it again. This vertical relationship, when God touches our lives, it has to go someplace, it has to move out. And if I'm in a relationship with the Lord and, and His grace is impacting my life, it's going to impact the way in which I live. And if I don't have that relationship attack, that's also going to impact the way I live, as we said at the beginning. But He's closed-minded, He can't see this, but He does show His true priorities. His true priorities are really for Himself. Uh, I mentioned The Prince's Bride last week. There's another great movie called The Hunt for the Red October. If you like, like, military thriller, kind of a spy kind of deal, it's a great movie to watch. Sean Connery was in it. was in, the, I think, 1990 or 1991. But Sean Connery plays a, a submarine captain that's, that's stealing a Soviet submarine and trying to defect to the United States, and they're chasing him all around the Atlantic. But he has a young apprentice who is now a captain of another submarine. 
and this young apprentice that he kind of taught him all the, the ropes and everything, his name is Tupolov. And as they're getting ready to sail, he's having, Sean Connery's having this conversation with another officer about this Tupolov character. And the officer says, oh, Tupolov, he's known to have a very warm place of affection in his heart for you, Captain. And, and the captain's response is, there's no room in Tupolov's heart for anyone but Tupolov. And I think that's what is being said here. That, 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 that whoever, you know, Tom Clancy who wrote that book somehow got the truth of that theology. That when we take the relationship with God and we put it on our shoulders to do the right things, to earn it ourselves, we're unwilling to consider the need for others. And there ends up being no room in our heart for anyone but ourselves. Notice also that this sadness is not a repentance. There is a sadness that leads to repentance. If, if you read in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about that very clearly. He talks about, I know I made you guys sad in my last letter. He called them out on some things they were doing wrong. But he said, it's because I wanted you to go from sadness to godly repentance. Sadness that leads to repentance ends up being a place where you go, Lord, you're right and I was wrong. And this is not that kind of conversation. This is rather a sadness that is a disappointment. Jesus, that's not the answer I wanted. I reject your truth. I reject your response. I'm unwilling to re-examine my own assumptions. The sadness ultimately is a rejection of Jesus' offer. It's a stubborn insistence to have it his own way. I want to come back to Captain Tupolov for just a moment because he is now chasing his, his one-time mentor. And they get into a battle towards the end of the movie in a submarine battle. And Tupolov, uh, full of pride, and full of arrogance, actually uh, does something that puts his own submarine at risk, and he ends up being destroyed. And right before uh, uh, a torpedo, which he launched, actually circles back and hits his boat, his assistant looks at him, and he says, you arrogant so-and-so, you've killed us. And this young man's sadness, this rejection of Jesus, is a stubborn insistence that I'm either going to earn it my way or I don't want it at all. Isn't this an uplifting sermon? <laughs> Aren't you glad you stayed awake for this one? I wish I was sleeping tight. <laughs> what do we do with this? What, what's the application? Uh, just to assume the worst about everybody and you know, let's sing some songs and go home. I, I think there's some very important uh, applications for us this morning, I wanna, and I want to give those to you this morning. Before I give you the first one, I want to say, if, if you're not a believer in Jesus, if this has been your position, please come back next week. Please come back and, and be with us when we kind of talk through how Jesus responds and the grace that he offers and the compassion that he has for, for stubborn folks like Tom Ricks and maybe maybe stubborn person like you too. That, that's okay. We got a lot of stubborn folks around here. But God's grace is, is for you, and I want you to hear that part of the message. But for those of us today that, that, that call Green Tree our home that would say we're disciples of Jesus, uh, how do we, what do we take away from this? Well, the first thing is this. If you stop and think about it, every person's starting point in their journey with Jesus begins out of rejection, right? There comes a place where you go, I was wrong living this way. I need to now turn and go this way. All of us have been in this place, even if you became a Christian as a, as a child, even if you, you put your faith in Christ at maybe at Young Life Camp in high school and years ago, but there was a moment where you were saying no, 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 and then you said yes. We need to remember that that is where we began our journey with Jesus as well. There's no room in our lives for arrogance or pride. Sometimes the things that I hear Christians say about non-Christians, about unbelievers, 
is, is it's not, it's hateful. It's spiteful. It's as if they were the enemy. And I, and I will say, I have said things, there are things that have come out of my mouth about people that don't know the Lord that I'm embarrassed and ashamed of. I wouldn't want them to be up on the screen this morning. Where did that come how could it be that those of us who say we've experienced the grace of God can have a tone that is prideful and hateful? Our starting point was a rejection of Jesus. I'm not going to go into this passage this morning, but if you need verification of that from Scripture, go read Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And look at what Paul says about himself and about his fellow disciples. Where was the starting point? And what changed that? And you'll see that the starting point was rejection, and what changed it was not effort, but God's grace. That should lead us to be humble in our interaction with other people, to be thankful for God's grace, and to be prayerful for those who have not yet experienced. Secondly, however, I think it informs our conversations. Friends, I think we need to engage our minds in a much more effective manner as we seek to share the gospel with others. What's going through a person's mind who thinks they have to earn their salvation, and how can I help them see that there is a better way? Understanding the objections and seeing the human heart fully for what it is can be extraordinarily helpful as we sit and talk with friends and family members, acquaintances, people that we love dearly about the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a believer, we are responsible to engage our minds as we interact with the community around us and to be wise and to be thoughtful, to be smart in how we approach these conversations. I always say to my children, never mistake being ugly with stupid. (laughs) Those are two very different things. I might be ugly, but I don't think I'm stupid. So you tried to sneak in last night at 12, and I'm sitting here waiting for you. Why is that? (laughs) Because I've been thinking about what you're thinking about. As we engage with our friends, are we thinking about what they're thinking about? Do we know? Have we been in those conversations with them? Use this information to inform our conversations. And then I think thirdly and very simply, it settles our priorities. It reminds us why we're here. We're not here for ourselves. We're not here so that we can be comfortable. We're not here so that life can be simple and easy and we can have everything that we want when we want it. We're here for the sake of others because that was Jesus' mission. Jesus came for the sake of others. Jesus didn't come so that he could, he could have a life of luxury. He came so he could go to a cross so that people like you and people like me who were destined for self-destruction were destined for hell and being separated from God from all of eternity could actually have an inheritance that was eternal life. And Jesus gave everything he had in order to see that accomplished. How can we do anything other than follow our Lord and our Savior in that process? It reminds us that we're here for him, and being here for him means we're here for others. There is an age-old human attitude that says, what must I do? I think it's good to know that when we get into a conversation with others. I think it's good to see Jesus' conversation with this rich ruler. And, and next week, again, we're going to engage in that answer. But for us this morning, for our purposes this morning, now that we have, have been in this text, will we seek out purposely and intentionally to be a church corporately as Green Tree as well as individuals who will seek to walk alongside people who think they got to do it on their own and tell them there's a much, much, much better answer. Will you pray with me? Father, this is a passage that is a difficult conversation. 
Lord, we don't know if ultimately this young man listened to your words and came and followed you and, and got rid of that which was hindering or if he continued on insisting in his own way and was lost. And Lord, that, that's not for us to know. We leave that in your hands. What is for us to consider this morning, Lord, is if we are in that place of trying hard and expecting you to reward what we do while we ignore the things that we don't do and the things that we do wrong, Father, I pray that you would work on our hearts this morning and help us to see that, that that's a, a way of thinking that leads to death. But Father, for those of us that are in this room that call ourselves disciples, Lord, I would pray that you would give us the heart that Jesus had in this conversation. He didn't chide. He didn't, he didn't get angry. He told the truth. And he offered words of life. Father, bring people into our pathways this week who need that word and equip us and empower us to share the truth of your grace and mercy with them. We pray in your name. Amen. Will you stand as we respond? It's time to sing your song again. 
time when I come back out here. <laughs> you got to do the Letterman thing, like, boom. <laughs> We're so glad you came and worshiped with us this morning. The joy of the Lord fills this place. If we could pray for you about anything, our prayer team is over here on my right. We'd be more than happy to do that. If you're new to Green Tree, I stand over by that, well, now by the orchestra pit this morning. would be happy to just meet you and welcome you to Green Tree. And I receive the Lord's benediction, which I gladly offer to you in his name. May the grace and the mercy, the peace and the strength of the Lord Jesus fill you and equip you to join with him in his mission, to share his word of life so that those who hear may find his peace. Amen. The Lord bless you. Go in peace.